Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Hello and welcome. My name is Paul Howarth. I'm a nuclear physicist. I have the honour and privilege of leading the UK government's National Nuclear Laboratory, which does all the research to support the very interesting nuclear programmes across the UK and overseas. You're watching the Inspiring Leadership podcast series with myself and our host, Jonathan Bowman-Perks. Thank you very much indeed, Paul. It's a real pleasure to have you on. You and I have been chatting on and off over the last couple of years, and it was your CFO, who I knew before in BAE Systems, who recommended you and genuinely said you are one of the inspiring leaders that he's really been lucky enough to work for. So it's it's a referral-only kind of CEO organization, and welcome to it. We're lovely uh, and really pleased to have you on. I'm really interested. Tell us a bit about what your organization NNL does. And, uh, and then let's go back to your early childhood, which led you to being now the CEO for a number of years. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, delighted to be on the series. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Jonathan. Um, so yeah, the National Nuclear Laboratory, uh, it is a fascinating organization. And um, what we do is uh, a lot of nuclear science research, technology, innovation, and engineering that supports uh, all aspects of the UK's nuclear programs. So that could be um, electricity generation, it could be looking at the legacy waste management and cleanup mission. It could be making sure the UK acts as a thought leader on the international stage with regards to uh, nuclear. And uh, everything that we do is really driven by making sure nuclear is safe, it's secure, and uh, it's effective as a technology. And we're getting into some really interesting areas as well as the way nuclear can support things like um, space travel, space missions, and also uh, cancer treatment. So yeah, it's an exciting organization. Well, it's fascinating. And as we, we chatted, you, you, you've got so many opportunities and it's, I'm really excited for you. And I also couldn't help but notice that little light blue area on your bookcase. So tell us a bit about your the, the football team you support by any chance? Uh, yeah, yeah, it does happen to be um, the, the the light blue team of Manchester. So yeah. I've been a lifelong uh, Manchester City supporter and uh, having come originally from Manchester, I had the, uh, the delight with my father of going to Main Road as it was then, of course, the old stadium and uh, watching uh, many matches of Manchester City Although I did get slightly disillusioned in the 1981 uh, cup final when we lost to Spurs. And I was uh, most disappointed like that. So if anybody does tell me they're Spurs fans now, uh, that, that hurts a bit. <laughs> and of course, there's some lovely lessons about leadership from football, isn't there? I mean, I, I, we weren't going to talk about this, but I'm just interested in really good leadership in football. What would you say is a couple of things that come from the game that you have found useful in in business? Well, actually, it's interesting you you say that because I have to say, looking at Manchester City at the moment and um, Guardiola and the style that he has, 
uh, I think he he is an inspiring leader because I think that he has a very personal touch uh, with the players. And the players talk about how he engages with them. He's interested in their families. He wants to know about the players. Uh, and I think that's really important to have that personal connection. But you, you see the degree of enthusiasm and emotion that he shows, and that just rubs off against the, the players. So I, I think when I see him, you think there's somebody who is so enthusiastic, you're just infected by that enthusiasm. Yeah, and it's interesting that you say that. One of the tips that I often pass on to CEOs is with all your direct reports, and indeed with anybody, um, make sure with your, certainly with your directs, that you, you go for a walking meeting. Uh, it might be in the current pandemic or the endemic, as we should really call it, because it's going to be with us always, that, that you have a walking meeting, let's say somewhere around Manchester, and they might be in Stockport, somewhere mm. distant, but, but you have a, a call and then you get them to share their life story with you particularly about their foundational values, the parents, their upbringing, football teams they supported might be, whatever it might be, but how you can find out to get the best out of them as the person, the leader that this man or woman is today. And, and that bond, asking someone about their whole life story is well worth listening to because it creates a level of trust that, that many leaders don't get with the direct report and they don't know about their lives and they're not really interested. They just want them to do a job. And, and you, won't get, you won't get people's heart. They want a, a mission, like you've got a mission-focused organization yeah. in NLL. You've got to have people who, who understand that their boss is interested in their foundational values and how they align with the organization. So I'm sure you do that, but it, it's just such a great technique. Any, any views yourself on that? Yeah, I think, it's, I think it's a really strong connection. I think the value system uh, that an individual has and the connectivity with what an organization is trying to achieve, I think is just so important. And um, for us, we we're in a really interesting phase as an organization because we're really recognizing that it's, it's nuclear science that benefits society. You know, whether that's to address climate change, environmental restoration, nuclear health and medicine, and really understanding the leadership team and, and indeed the staff in general, what drives them? Why are they here? What do they want to achieve? So having that connection with them is just so important. We're in a really interesting phase of really seeing that now in the organization. That's, that's brilliant. And, and also you and I have talked about your love of learning. And as a leader, you're always trying to learn and grow. And I can't help also noticing in that amazing collection of books behind you, that there's a little banner saying Harvard on it. Do you want to tell the audience what the connection with Harvard is? Yeah, so I had the, um, uh, the, the delight and privilege in 2019 of going to Harvard on their advanced management uh, program, wow. which uh, was uh, an absolutely fantastic uh, experience. And um, it was the, the chair of the organization that, um, uh, that suggested that it would be, would be a good thing to do. Uh, I've been chief executive now of, of NNL for 10 years. And um, uh, we had a really good uh, discussion between myself and the chairman about, um, about lifelong learning and about the importance of it. And we want to demonstrate that we were committed as an organization to learning. And we recognized as the board, well, uh, we've got to um, start at the top, really, you know, put our money where our mouth is and that, uh, walk the talk. And so... Um, 
uh, uh, to me, say, what do you want to do? And uh, looking around at what I, I could uh, take on next, uh, the opportunity, actually, uh, it, it, uh, it addressed a number of things. One was to leave the organization for the period of time whilst at Harvard, so completely extract myself, which we all recognize that's a really good thing to be able to see how an organization survives without having the chief executive there. And a good organization should be good. And I should leave knowing that everything's going to be fine. It's going to be okay. You know, and, and that's, that's really important as well, because that gives you an indication of the, the sense of empowerment mm. and decision-making uh, within an organization. But I found the learning at Harvard was 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 a fascinating opportunity being with so many different people from uh, different organizations. And for me, it's hugely helped in the reflection on defining the strategy for the organization going forward. So uh, an immensely valuable opportunity and costs cost a lot of money to go. But actually, when you realize the benefit that you get um, of being engaged with a network of people, that you can, you can discuss what you're trying to do in an organization with people that just don't know who you are or don't know your organization, and you've got to be able to communicate to them. You've got to be able to explain. And equally, they put the challenge in. You know, They don't understand what you're doing. They don't know the area or the industry. So you get some fascinating challenges. Great opportunity. I, I, I would recommend it. Yeah, it's really good. And also, when time permits, you're about to join the CEOs club, about uh, 30 CEOs, to, to swap best ideas between you yeah. all. We're going to have yeah. it as, uh, every month uh, as a podcast that people will be able to listen to these conversations we're going to have. So um, think about a, a good topic that you'd like to discuss with the CEOs sure. and, and drop me a note about that. And we'll make sure that one of the future sessions perhaps might be led by you on that particular topic and we'll get them all involved. Sure. So, hey, look, I'm already enjoying this. So let's go back to ch childhood, the young Paul Howarth. Um, who uh, and what kind of life experiences shaped you as you were growing up? Parents, grandparents, uncles, teachers, uh, scoutmasters, sports team leaders. What? Tell me a bit about it. Yeah, so I, I suppose it's a bit of all of that, really, isn't it? Uh, for you know a, a young lad uh, like like myself, um, uh, enjoyed enjoyed childhood, enjoyed um, uh, the education experience, enjoyed sports uh, all round. Still, actually, uh, managed to uh, drag myself around a hockey pitch as well, even at my age. And uh, my eldest son now, he's eighteen, so. He, he plays hockey. We have the delight of playing in the same team. So I'm enjoying this very finite window of where we're playing in the same team, where I will slow down and he speeds up. So wow. it's, a, it's an enjoyable window of opportunity. Um, I, I love that. I love but, that. Uh, yeah, there's, there's, there, there is a lot of things that uh, I think I've, I've taken from um, my um, uh, uh, early days and, and as a, a young lad, which uh, have carried through now. Uh, certainly an interest, for example, in science, technology uh, and engineering has been has been one and uh, fascinated, absolutely fascinated. Uh, it really hit me. And, and I, I see children, children now and, you know, my kids and, and um, school kids, uh, nothing special at O levels. Uh, that shows my age you know, before GCSEs. 
O levels. Um, and it was really at A levels. I, I, I felt it just connected and, and I just really switched on. I really enjoyed it. And for me, it was um, uh, astrophysics and, and being able to describe the universe in a set of equations. Like, why are we here? How did we come about? How on earth can we have mathematics that describes what we are? And uh, really interesting, like, what is quantum mechanics and things like that? So for me, then having the opportunity to go off to university, uh, I chose a degree course, which was physics, which was astrophysics. Uh, why astrophysics? Um, sounded pretty cool. Uh, sounded pretty damn hard, actually. And then, yeah, it was uh, an awful lot of, of, of maths, but um, fascinating opportunity, fascinating experience. But also what, what stayed with me, sports stayed with me a lot. Uh, I've, I've always been a keen cyclist. So a lot of the books you can see behind, one shelf is management books. The other shelf is, is about cycling. And I found cycling to be, to be fantastic as far as just clearing your mind, just having that stress relief, getting out, thinking about things. And I remember cycling around lanes and trying to remember equations for black body radiation. Uh, but at the same time, now I go out thinking, I've got a really difficult problem I need to solve in managing the organization and leadership. Get out on the bike, you think it through. So for me, it's been a combination of science, technology, uh, coupled with um, sport. Well, well, a couple of things come come up from that, and that was really lovely to hear. The first one is I'm reading or listening to, because I'm dyslexic, so I tend to listen to audiobooks, about 160 a year. I I consume them in vast amounts to then share them with leaders and people on the podcast. But um, No Rules Rules by Reed Hastings is a yeah. good read. You'd enjoy it. And in it, he mentions Icarus. And when they took the, um, the punt on should they pay something like 5.4 million pounds to, to, to buy the rights to Icarus uh, yeah. about the cyclist who took the doping and got the Russian guy and hooked him in. And they oh, yeah, almost- I've seen that. Yeah, I've seen it on, um, is it Netflix? I it's think Netflix, it's, yeah. it's Netflix. Yeah. Yeah. And, and how he almost thought it was a complete dud. But then luckily there was the doping scandal where the Russians were getting right. ejected and it suddenly went viral. And of course, Lance Armstrong said it was good and he watched it. Uh, he was mentioned on it, obviously, for his yeah. own doping scandal. So it's just interesting that that was a, a thought on the, the cycling. The other one is back to diversity, equality and inclusion. Never judge a book by its cover. Mm. Now, if I was to first meet you uh, and, and see you now and all the fitness and the energy that comes out, of you, I wouldn't go, oh, yeah, yeah, he, I can tell he's an astrophysics kind of guy. And he's a, you know, he, he's a scientist because you don't look like it. So don't judge anybody like what does a scientist look like? They don't look like anything. They're, they're never they're never you know, you never should make a sweeping judgment about people. And, and it's always this is why you got to find out people's life story because you just don't know. Yeah, you get them. yeah. So if yeah. anybody, perhaps I'm the first, has anybody ever said you I didn't I wouldn't expect you to have been the kind of scientist I thought with the way you look and your fitness and that kind of stuff. What do you think? Yeah, that is, uh, you, you're not the first. Uh, don't worry. But no, it does. It, it does actually stop people in the tracks that uh, they can't get their head around. When I say like I'm a nuclear physicist, they go, oh, my God, I've never met a nuclear physicist um, before in my life. And you don't look like what I thought a nuclear physicist uh, would look like. So, uh, yeah, it's um, uh, it, it does. It does catch people out. 
Yeah, no, that's great. So let's go on to um, proudest moments, that the sort of happiest, most joyful moment in your life and what you learned from that. And then a, a dark moment in your personal life and or your work and what you learned from that, Paul. Okay, well, I think uh, from, a, from a career point of view, the proudest moment, uh, it, it, it has to be, uh, it has to be running this organization uh, at the moment. It is a, it's a fascinating uh, organization, which uh, we, 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 we it, it's one of these, when you stop and think about it, you go, oh my God, this is amazing. But, um, you know, we, we operate nuclear facilities. Uh, we've got two billion pounds worth of nuclear uh, assets. Um, we can handle uh, spent nuclear fuel, high-level waste, plutonium, uranium, uh, in in large amounts in complex facilities. And sometimes you have to stop yourself and think, crikey, uh, I have responsibility for all of this. For me, actually, uh, I think the, the recent uh, uh, COVID pandemic, proudest moment for me, I think, has probably come most recently. 12 months ago, we were facing into this crisis. Uh, and everybody's looking down a bit of a black hole here as what does this mean? I set myself a couple of personal challenges as far as the organization was concerned. The, the first one was to say, I'm not going to lose any staff through this. Uh, I'm going to keep everybody in the organization. I, I don't even want to put anybody onto furlough. I'm going to make everybody feel that they've got a job and a meaningful career. And secondly, uh, obviously, uh, to be a going concern as a business to maintain the, uh, the cash uh, position. 12 months on, uh, absolutely delighted with where we are now. Um, not only did we keep everybody, but uh, we increased by about 200 people coming into the uh, organization, which is fantastic. Another 200 are coming in uh, as well. And uh, the cash position uh, was absolutely fantastic. And we've just delivered our best year ever uh, uh -huh. that, that, that we've had. So. For me, yeah, proudest moment running this organization and actually getting it through the, uh, uh, the recent pandemic uh, crisis. So, yeah, um, I suppose proudest moment out, outside, um, uh, uh, my family, wife, children, three teenage lads now uh, being able to kick a ball around in the garden is uh, you think, wow, yeah, you know, this is this again, it's one of those you have to stop and, and, and think to yourself, gosh, yeah, this is this is really quite special. So for me, yeah, um, uh, I think that sum summarizes my proudest moments. Great, and and let's go on to um, you know only the strong can be vulnerable. So what's what's been your hardest moment, either in a personal life or perhaps as well in work, and what did you learn from it? I think uh, the the hardest moment for me, and it's and it's taught me a lot uh, in my earlier career days working for a line manager, senior line manager, that basically had a very, very different value system and not a good value system in, in my regard. Uh, and frankly, um, treated people very badly. Uh, and that taught me an awful, an awful lot. You know, I'll give you, give you a slight insight to this. So when when I was um, interviewed for, for a role, I was supported very much by senior executive in a very large company, uh, British Nuclear Fuels, and they, they put me on the fast track. They slotted me into part of the organization and I was working for a gentleman and he, and he said to me, uh, what gets you out of bed in the morning, Paul? You know, why'd you come to work? 
To which I answered, um, I want to build nuclear reactors. Uh, I want to address climate change uh, because that's the greatest existential threat to humankind. That's what I want to do. To which the response back, he said, that's not what gets me out of bed. It's, it's being a leader and playing with people and their careers. And I was, whoa, that's been like that. Uh, uh, and then um, uh, 12 months later, I was on the receiving end of that. And it taught me an awful lot. So it was a really dark moment because I thought I was on a good career trajectory. I've got a you know good opportunity with the company, uh, and uh, yeah, I, it it that that twelve month period taught me an awful lot about how not to be a leader, and I carry that with me because I never ever want to be regarded as uh, you know someone in that in that sense. Mm. That that's really playing with people. It almost sounds yeah. as if he's like one of the white collar psychopaths. Oh god, yeah, 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 yeah. So it, was he? Was he ever found out? Oh yeah. Well, actually, I uh, in yeah yeah um, uh, he, he he was, and uh, there's there's a, there, there are like you know it's a legacy thing, isn't it? Because it affects people for many many years. It takes a long time to to clear those issues. So it just goes to show the the influence that you have as a leader, and it's recognizing that um, your responsibility as a leader goes beyond just the individual that you're dealing with. It's the 360 thing, isn't it, of, of them and their life. And people that have come up to me uh, later on, uh, you know, in my, in my career and said, and I didn't quite get my head around this, but in nuclear facilities, you often have a workforce that's dedicated to a nuclear facility. These, these are really quite special places to work. Not many people get to go to them. You, you know, you don't have um, windows in some of them for obvious reasons. You go through endless security. You go deep into these nuclear assets and that that we have people might be handling uh, nuclear fuel. And uh, uh, one of the guys there, retirement dude, came up to me and he said, I just want to say to you that this facility is so important to me. He spent his whole life working in this plant. And uh, he said, the work that I've done in this plant has given me everything in my life. It's given me my daughter's education. It's given me my daughter's being able to go to, to university. It's, it's given me a loving relationship with my wife. It's given me my house. It's given me everything. And you think, I've never thought about that. I've never thought of a nuclear facility that this is what it gives to people for the whole of, you know, in some cases for 40 years. Yeah, fascinating. That's, that's a lovely story, Paul. Thank you. And, and, very, and very inspirational, actually. And, and, and thinking about this man and his children, let's, and you've got three boys and, and your wife, let's go back to when you were a young lad, aged about 16 to 18. Knowing what you know now, Paul, from your advanced management program at Harvard and all the other studies you've done, and you're clearly a leader from the conversations we've had, who are always working progress. You're always learning about what's the best, the latest techniques, how can I, how can I lead better? How can I develop my people? Um, what bit of advice would you give to the young Paul Howarth if you went back in a time machine? Because I'm sure some astrophysicists will design one soon anyway. We'll give it a go. We'll, we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll give that we one. Can, <laughs> and then NNL's new time machine. But if you went back and you saw yourself, you went, lad, hi, look, let me tell you, this doesn't matter, but this does matter. What would you say to yourself? For me, uh, it's, yeah, it's a good question. I, I think for me, it's um, it's... It's follow, follow, it's almost like follow your nose, follow your beliefs, you know, follow your value system and, and what is important to you. And, uh, I, and when I see young people come into to NNL, we do a program where 
those people that very age group 16 get to spend a week with me and what's it like to be a leader what do you do and what I say to them and I guess what I would say to to a younger version of myself is is do what you enjoy and um what you know really really inspires you because you're going to spend a large amount of your career uh doing that and in fact when I went to Harvard they hit you quite hard with this um they they really get you to search what is your value system? Why are you here? What do you believe in? And they get they get a little bit brutal about it to then say, what does your organization do? Because if there isn't a strong connection in the value system between you as an individual and your organization, their view is just stop what you're doing, finish this course, go back and resign because you're in the wrong job, you're doing the wrong thing. And, and effectively, it's a bit like what we talked about earlier, you'll get found out because when it gets to the crunch point, if your value system between you and your organization is not aligned, then um, you know, you're in for a rough ride. So for me, young, as a young individual, follow, follow, follow your nose, follow your value system and, and do what you believe in. I, I love that. And, and it's so true. And that takes us beautifully on to the Inspiring Leadership Compass from the research that my wife Lee and I did about what makes high-performing and high-potential leaders. Um, and, and if we go around the eight components, perhaps you could share some of your own views on that. We'll begin with the natural link, which is the top of the compass, where the true north points. And I think at Harvard, they talk about true north. What they is do, your yeah. true north? Yeah, you're right. Because uh, I did one of their programs as well at, uh, at Harvard on, on leadership in the 21st century conflict, uh, which was quite an interesting one. Um, what would you say is your moral values, your foundational values and vir virtues, if you were to talk about the top three uh, and that you aspire to live by? And, and how did you pick yourself up and bring yourself back onto True North when you let them slip? So for me, I think that uh, always one is always integrity, uh, without a doubt, and, uh, and and coupled with that is is openness and transparency. I think that you you can get one can get themselves into a mess if uh, you can't stay true to your own personal integrity, or indeed uh, your openness and, and transparency. So I try to be within the organization as open and transparent as I possibly uh, can be, because I think that that helps people if they understand where's the organization going, what's the challenges, what are we trying to do, what are we trying to achieve? It's their organization just as much as it's my organization. They have a right to, to know and a right to contribute uh, to it. So for me, it's all, it's all around the dimension of, of openness, transparency, integrity. And I so agree with that. I'm doing a program with a couple of American guys um, and they talk about unleash your humble alpha, which is quite fun. And one of their things is called HIT, honesty, integrity and transparency. And it also came out in um, the, uh, the book on No Rules Rules that, that for Netflix, transparency is a really important thing. So unlike many organizations, when they fire someone for bad behavior or lack of integrity, they just say they're left for personal reasons, which isn't transparent. And everybody knows it and they're going to find out. So actually what they do is they say we've let them go because they broke the code of ethics or because they'd um, yeah. broken the expense policy or they'd misspent money, which they shouldn't have. 
they actually say it. They go, oh, you couldn't do it. But actually, why not say? Because everyone else knows. Or they go, really? And so you're not actually living that transparency. I don't know whether how transparent you can be at, at NNL. Well, I think uh, coming out of the, the pandemic, uh, one of the, um, the things that we've certainly found in this past year is, um, well, actually going into it, we just said to people, look, um, we know you are facing into a, into a lot of uh, challenges, also on a personal front, not just a work front. There's a lot of stress here. So we just said, look, do what you can as far as work is, is concerned. If, if you can't be there for a reason, look, we understand it. We'll all get through this together. It'll all be good on the other side. So I'm not going to put any pressure on you uh, as far as work is, is, is concerned. And I will provide that air cover with our customers as far as delivery is concerned. Lovely. Lovely. Um, where actually now we've got to is, is actually, as I say, we've had our best performing year. So, you know, we're learning as an organization Actually, when we stop and think about it, we, we take really bright, intelligent, smart, well-educated people you know, that have got degrees and PhDs and, and God knows what. Why do we tie them down with so many rules? Yeah. You know, they, they can work it out themselves. Yeah. And so I'm sort of saying to them that, look, in terms of I don't, I, I don't need you to be present in the office. You're, you're, you're smart enough and, and hopefully we can inspire you about what you want to do and achieve and why you want to get up in the morning and actually one of the things that came out of harvard was um when when i when i arrived at the course and i said to people that i worked in nuclear they're a little bit whoa that's a bit that's a bit scary um you know don't know anything about it and then uh we had to describe at the end as to what our value and what our purpose is the organization so i got up front of the class and said, so i thought about this whilst being here i said the purpose in my organization is to address climate change is number one. The second one is environmental restoration, you know, to clean up the environment. The third one is to protect nuclear material from the general public. And the fourth one is to develop uh, nuclear as a means to address cancer treatment. And the folks in, in the audience said, that is amazing. They said, I can't get anywhere near that. In the industries that we're in, we get nowhere near the fact that to at least have one of those alone is so good. To have four of things like we're here to address climate change. So I'd say to people in the organisation, look, it's that's get you out of bed in the morning. You, you know, work however best you can. And people have come up to me afterwards and said, you've just given me meaning as to why I'm here and what I want to do and what I want to achieve. And you have put it so beautifully in earlier conversations we've had and in now, which leads me on to, you've covered in many ways, the next element of what makes inspiring leaders. And you can see this on my website, jonathanperks.com. But we went from MQ to PQ, which in some people is SQ, spiritual quotient, intelligent yeah. quotient, but it's meaning and purpose quotient. Yeah. And, and, and he who has a clear burning why can cope with any what or how. I think it's Nietzsche, the, the philosopher who talked about that. But because time and again, this is where Apple got, and don't worry about the dog barking. I've got, I've got a pup out. So I've got he's two, enjoying two. it. Oh yeah, they're ha having a great time. This is, this is part of real life. Um, uh, I, I find that in, in the story of uh, getting to why by, um, I forgot the guy's name, Simon Sinek. He said, you know, Apple had the lead over uh, Microsoft because they had this clear burning why, this making a dint in the universe, this, this being different, challenging. And I think, um, it's interesting if you were to say any more about 
you've said by why you do what you do, your vocation, your calling, your dharma, and what gives your life meaning and purpose. So, so actually, I don't think we need to cover anything more. I'll go on to the next topic because you cover that so beautifully. And the two are very closely linked, your values, if you got it right, and the purpose of your organization and why you're doing yeah. what you're doing. Um, you know, why I do what I do is on the front of my website about, you know, my father's death and, and how I um, are looking for other inspiring leaders like, like he was. I'm sure the psychiatrist would have a field day with me looking for the, uh, the lost father who uh, died when I was three. Um, HQ is the next. There's your cycling and uh, your love of hockey played with your 18 year old son. Uh, what, what do you do to uh, keep mentally fit and physically fit? And uh, what have you done when it slipped and you need to get it back on? You have a good, couple of good practices that you'd pass on to people who are listening in. Yeah, so I think, uh, I, I think for me, the, the, the importance of, you know, of keeping um, uh, physically fit and, and mental fitness uh, is, is just so, so important. The work-life balance to me is, is really important. Uh, I, I, I've, I've been fortunate to... Uh, you know, work overseas, work in, in different companies, uh, uh, different cultures, different climates. And um, uh, I, I think that we, we do in, in industry in a whole believe too much in this presenteeism and, and you know, long amounts of, of, of time done is not necessarily good quality. And what I try to encourage, certainly for my executive, is um, it's it's a large proportion is not doing its thinking, and uh, to get to get the balance right of the danger of having too much of your head down, you're just doing doing doing, and you you then effectively create a culture in the organisation. We just have to do. We've got to do stuff. Got to be seen to do stuff. Um, we've got to be always in the office. We've got to always be seen to be travelling. What I'm trying to communicate to, to people is, a, is a, certainly in an organization that, that we've got, there's a lot of thinking that needs to be done. Yeah. And to step back from the problems, think about them and come up with the solution. So having that um, healthy you know, work-life balance is, is just so important because otherwise I'm just going to drive an organization uh, uh, too hard, uh, stress levels are going to go up. And actually, of course, when you're dealing with nuclear, and, and you've got people handling nuclear material, you need, you, need to be, you need to be really careful. And I've seen some great practices in our organization. You know, I'll, I'll give, just give you one, um, uh, a very simple one. Uh, walked into a facility during the, the, pan, the pandemic, see how things were going. And uh, one of the guys said, oh, uh, we've just had to um, get, um, uh, you know, Joe to, to just head home for the day. So I said, well, everything okay? Is everything all right? I said, Turned up to work, um, really stressed out because I wasn't able to get to the supermarket because there were queues outside the supermarket because of the lockdown associated with the pandemic. We told him, just go home. That's more important for you to sort out. And I said, guys, you did exactly the right, the right thing. Why? Because what I can't have is someone coming into a nuclear facility, handling nuclear material, who's, who is who's stressed up about something outside work. So we have to take a very, very cautious approach, make sure everybody's got a good, healthy work-life balance. They're coming, to, they're coming into work without a bucket load of stress because you don't want them handling nuclear material. 
That is so beautifully put. And, and this is where, you know, my days, my 20 years in the military, when we've got people firing tanks or ammunition, uh, we, we don't want them super stressed. I mean, clearly in wartime and in training, we do stress them deliberately yeah. to, to get them used to it, you know, um, fight hard, um, train hard, fight easy. Yeah. But that there's a fine balance. And I think in the past, people who, I remember we did escape and evasion. I was, I was uh, trained by the special forces because we were in electronic warfare. We were spies listening to the Russians and the East Germans. Um, and so we were prone to capture and they put us in stress positions when they captured us. We had escape and evasion all the way across West Germany, which was fascinating. But, but you come to think about it that if you stress people out too much, they will break. And, and if they break and they're in a key role, that's not good. And too many good men and, and women who I've known in the forces, who've done special forces tours and like, have PTSD now for what they've experienced and seen. And it ruins their life and their family and probably their marriages break up and things like that. So there are consequences. And the other thing I thought from what you said, which was so pertinent, I will remember that story as well that you've just shared, but, but actually your people are paid to think not to be busy. And, and, and uh, you know, if you just do, 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 you get what the Australians call a pile of doo-doo. And um, you're a human being, not a human doing. Yeah. So, so, yeah. so, you know, how, how are you being? How are you showing up? How are you with people? That, that's some great stories you've told. Moving on from that to CQ, we used to talk about IQ, which already it's a given that you've got some smart people. And IQ is good for doing IQ tests. It's not much good for anything else. But CQ is cultural intelligence quotient. And again, there's a good article in, in the Harvard Business Review about this uh, recently. But, but uh, Lee and I are starting to think about this more, particularly around diversity, equality, and inclusion. And my, my question to you is really, what have you learned over the years about adapting to different cultures? And also, what are you doing in NNL to, to have good diversity, good equality, and good inclusion? Yeah, so um, I think it, it is an incredibly important uh, uh, topic. And, and actually, it takes me back to, to my um, youth days as well. Um, so I've got two uh, sisters older than me. And when they were going through school, uh, they were at uh, secondary school. My eldest uh, sister wanted to go to medical school. She was doing uh, maths, physics, chemistry at uh, A level. And the, the school said, um, because she's a girl, we don't believe that she'd be able to, to do uh, medicine. So she would have to go and agree to have extra tuition. So um, my, uh, my, my parents uh, effectively agreed to this. And I had to sit in the back of my mum's little mini uh, somewhere in Macclesfield whilst my eldest sister had to go for extra tuition because she was a girl. And I couldn't get my head around this, thinking, I don't understand that. Why? Why? Because she's a girl. Does she need to have extra tuition to be able to then want to do medicine at, at university? So I think uh, early on, uh, I, I was thinking, I don't, I don't get this. This seems to be really odd. Um, and where that's carried forward as far as how I work in NNL and the importance of uh, diversity and inclusion, I look at it quite simply. And that is uh, through a number of different lenses, actually. One is, as a leader, I want to make sure I'm making good quality decisions. 
And for me to ensure that there is a diverse perspective around me, there's a diverse set of inputs in making that uh, a, a decision is going to improve the quality of that decision. I also believe, and having spent quite a bit of time working in the US in the national laboratories, uh, I see uh, a lot of innovation in the US because they have a very diverse approach there of, of encouraging diversity of thought, diversity of characters contributing to innovation. So I need to make good quality management decisions. I need innovation. So I need people from a diverse background to come up with different uh, technologies, different solutions. Also, um, uh, in nuclear and in science and engineering, we don't have a hugely diverse pool of people that join the subject. And certainly in the United Kingdom and in lots of countries, we absolutely need people doing science, technology and engineering. So if I'm looking to recruit, I, I want that pool of people to be as big as possible. And in fact, there just aren't enough people coming into nuclear. We are short of well-qualified science technologists and engineers. Surely let's make that pool bigger. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, have to be just a male-orientated uh, industry sector. Um, we need to increase the size of the pool. So I need it for that reason. And then finally, uh, we're here to benefit society. So our organization needs to look like society and we need to reflect society because if we're going to offer nuclear solutions, whether it's energy to address climate change or it's nuclear for medicine, then you know, we, we need a workforce that connects directly with the, uh, uh, the general public. Brilliant. And that takes us on nicely uh, to connect to the general public um, onto EQ, emotional and social intelligence, listening, influencing people, persuading, reading the little nuances, even as you and I are on a Zoom call now, as I'm watching you in the screen, am I picking up small micro cues in your face uh, and little movements of your face? Um, again, with this awful stereotype, when people think of nuclear physicists, they think of high IQ, but low EQ. Um, but you clearly have broken the mold. H how do you get your other fellow scientists to really tone up their emotional and social intelligence to read themselves and their emotions, manage that better, read others and their emotions and manage groups better and read the environment that they're in and how things are going? Uh, what, what's your tip and advice to people listening? So uh, for, for me, I think it is, uh, uh, it, it's having that connection with uh, people in the workforce and, and really understanding what drives them, where they come from, but also uh, helping them to um, uh, really recognize and inspire them of what they're doing and what it means. So yeah, we have lots of people that are very dedicated and are subject matter experts that could spend decades working in a in a particular aspect of a particular field, but helping them to recognize the benefit of what they're doing and the connection to society and, and raising that profile and, and getting them to engage with, with people as well. I, I think that for science and technologists to get out there and to talk to the general public, go to schools and, and explain what they're doing, I think sometimes we take for granted what we do is... We just do it because we do it. The general public go, oh, my God, that's amazing. You know, for example, we're, we're looking at the moment of um, recently, say, say the NASA mission. 
to Mars, it's nuclear powered. Uh, it's a, the, the little uh, drone charges up off a nuclear battery. We're working on the dark side of the moon mission in, in 2028 to provide the material to power that spacecraft. People are working on it. They don't think anything about it. I'm saying, get out there, talk to people, you know, talk to kids and explain it, you know, make the connection. Yeah, brilliant. No, that's absolutely brilliant. And of course, with all this effort to make a difference to the environment, um, to, to make a difference to health and well-being and cancer treatment and things like that, um, you know, that, that's very pertinent to me. My poor middle brother, David, who I'm very close to, is just 62. He's just been diagnosed with uh, metastatic cancer and uh, it, it's just all over his body, poor guy. And so any kind of cures these days uh, make, a, make a huge difference. And just my thoughts go out to him. So the work that you're doing makes a huge difference to people's lives. And, and resilience is what's required for David and for his family and for my family and others. What do you do to develop resilience? Because, you know, you've got the fitness and the training, the cycling and the hockey, but you must have had setbacks and disappointments. How would you pick yourself up? And when you face something difficult, what's your tip on a good tip on resilience uh, over adversity? Yeah, so I, I think for me, as, uh, as far as resilience is concerned, um, the challenges of, of working in our industry, we work very closely with government. Working with governments uh, can be hard. You know, it can be tough because uh, you, you've got to engage with civil servants that might not necessarily understand or appreciate what you're trying to trying to do. Um, they have their own drivers. They're facing into uh, the the world of the of government, of civil service, of politicians. It's hard. Uh, and so, yeah, uh, I've I've had many setbacks of of finding it difficult dealing with uh, with government. I know you have a number of international viewers for this, but uh, for me, going down to see the British government. Sometimes I've come out of those meetings and I've just wanted to jump under the first red bus that comes past thinking I can't take any more of this. <laughs> but for me, uh, it's actually, why am I doing it? And it comes back to that purpose. And for me, why am I doing it? It's, it's to make a difference as far as climate change is concerned. Any way you look at climate change at the moment, the, the, the numbers are horrific. And the size of the challenge is enormous. We need every tool in the toolbox to address climate change. So, yeah, in nuclear, I actually do find you get hit and you get hit bad by, by people that don't want anything to do with it. I've had people that have even refused to shake my hand, you know, from the point of view of, oh, my God, you work in nuclear. I can't even shake your hand. I don't, I don't believe in, in what you do at all. Mm. But what keeps you going is realizing that the impact that climate change is having on the planet and that nuclear is one of the solutions, not the only solution, there's plenty of others, but it can massively contribute to addressing climate change in the lives of hundreds and thousands of people uh, across the globe. So that, that's what gets me, uh, keeps me going. Yeah, thank you for that, Paul. And then from resilience onto brand BQ, brand reputation, image, impact, 360 feedback. How, how, do you, uh, how do you as a CEO ensure that you get really good 360 feedback? For example, what uh, Netflix do, which I've done uh, in the past, but I will start to do it again, is they have dinners with their exec over a five-hour period. Here's the challenge. Um, over a five-hour period, 
and people come with stop, start and continue for each of their peers. And it's live 360 feedback with each other. And no holes, but no, no nicey touchy feely or, you know, you're a nice person and I like your shoes or like, it's actually, you know, what should behaviors should you stop, start and continue, but come with good intent. Uh, have you done that kind of thing? Do you do that kind of thing? And, and how do you learn about how others perceive you? So we, we, uh, we're a very interesting organization in that um, most countries that have uh, uh, nuclear capability in one form or another have an organization that looks similar to ours, but one that is generally funded on grants by government. For us, we're different. We are customer funded. And that's a really important connection for me because that makes sure that we are doing our work to deliver for our customers. We've got to deliver to time, cost and quality. Uh, and I find that's a real motivator. That's a real driver because it uh, shows the connection that we have. We have got to continue to deliver what our customers need for what they need to do for their programs. So I find the, the customer feedback, customer engagements really, really important. Fortunately, we don't have a huge number of, of, of customers because obviously it's, it's a limited field. It's not like being able to do large degree of customer uh, feedback customer surveys but yeah for me really important to have that connection with uh, with customers I suppose it's only a, it's only a handful that we have but keeping really close to them and understanding how they feel where they where their challenges are and what we can do to help them brilliant and um, and and how about that dinner are you going to do that dinner with uh, 360 feedback between all your exec good idea we'll have to think about yeah doing I that think you have to do that one. it's a good stretch okay um so we'll talk about legacy next, um, your experience of exec teams, and then a book that you recommend, and then we'll go to your final top tip. So firstly, in a sentence, what would you like your legacy to be uh, in your time as, as CEO at NNL? For me, it's, it's sustainability of the organization. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's recognizing this organization needs, needs to go on a journey beyond my time here and it's needed for the future yeah beautifully put and then in brief your experience of toxic teams where it might be one individual like that boss you talked about who is toxic um and how you take a toxic team and turn it into a high performing team you know you're interested in football and sport and hockey but but what's what's your experience in in a nutshell uh, i i think there's there's a case that uh, there may be the heart of the team. There may be, there's, I think, as we say, there's people at the front of the boat that are always on board. There's people in the middle of the boat that are ambivalent. And yeah, there, there are some folks that just don't fit with teams. Uh, and I think you've got to work it out. I, uh, I want to have a climate where there's no political agenda that is overriding what we are trying to do. And I think it's rooting out that political agenda because it's, it's, it's not as important as what the overall mission is. Yeah, I love that one. There was a father who, uh, just writing that down, no political agenda. There was a father who said to me, he was at a match with his young son and, and they, uh, they lost 3-1 to, uh, to another team. And they were all gutted about this. And when they came off, this other lad said to him, well, we were doing fine at the front. We scored three goals. Yeah, no, we scored one. We scored one goal, but you let in three goals. You lost the let the team down, and 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 he said, "Lad, doesn't work that way. You're a team. You're all in it. It's not yeah. the attackers yeah. win and the defenders yeah. lose. It's not quite like that." But I think sometimes people feel that way. Um, 
before we go to the top tip, uh, what would be your favorite book on, on leadership that you've read recently that you'd recommend to other people? Uh, which one would, would it be and who is the author? Can you remember? So for me, the, the one that I found the, uh, the best is, is actually um, The Diary of Ernest uh, Shackleton. Oh, yeah. His, um, uh, Antarctic uh, exploration that, uh, of course, went wrong. Yes. And uh, it's, it's a fascinating story of leadership and um, Shackleton's approach to it. And what he did is just phenomenal to look after the, uh, the men on the boat. And, and effectively, he set himself the task of, I'm going to get all of these men home. And that's, exactly, and that's exactly what he did. And he, he absolutely led from the front. So, yeah, it's not necessarily a management book, but no, I, I think it is. I think great. it is. Yeah, I, I think it is. And, and over the years, people have mentioned it to me and I keep meaning to uh, listen to it. So I'm going to look for an audio version of that. Um, and so if you find one, give me the link to that. But uh, that's a great recommendation. Thank you for that, Paul. So finally, Paul, would you do your intro to your yourself and what you do uh, and your top tip to end it all? And then stay on the line and we'll have a, a chat after we finish recording. Okay, so intro to myself. Well, I suppose uh, uh, this has been a great opportunity. I've really enjoyed it. Uh, my name is Paul Howarth, and I am the Chief Executive of the National Nuclear Laboratory. Uh, I've really enjoyed this inspiring leadership podcast with uh, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And I guess my one top tip is follow your nose, believe in your values. Yeah, that's a great tip. Paul, thank you very much for being on the series and for sharing your wisdom experience. And good luck with all the work you and your organization do. Brilliant. Thanks, Jonathan. Really enjoyed it. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.